Hey, welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. In this episode, I have what you could class, I guess, as Dota 2 royalty. I've had a previous world champion, Dota 2 player, and still player on the podcast before, and, and this time I have another one in the form of a guy known as Loda, who is a previous TI winner, which is the International Dota 2, and a current coach and owner of an esports organization. We had a really great casual chat, and it is not often at all that Loda does podcasts. All stop. So it was fantastic, and he actually reached out to me to do this one. So thank you so much for all those who've been supporting the podcast and have been suggesting guests and helping to introduce me to people to bring them on. This is honestly my favorite, I think, my favorite podcast to date. So hopefully you enjoy it, because I did. Thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast. We've created it really to help increase information sharing and understanding of the esports market. If you'd like to help us out, feel free to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you do and make sure to share this with your friends. Hopefully we've been able to provide some fantastic information to you and a bit of a learning experience over this period of time, whether you're looking to skill up, enter the industry, or you're just looking to monitor to see how things are going. If you'd like to put yourself forward as a guest, suggest any others or ask any questions feel free to connect with us at bigesports.gg or on any of the social media platforms at bigesports underscore gg. Loda, how are you? Hey, uh, I'm good. I'm good. That's good, good man. We're, we're talking a bit before we started that um, it's been a long day for me today. The, the past few weeks I've had like this influx of people from Europe I've been meeting with. So last week I think every meeting of mine was 12 hours apart. So I had an 8 a.m. and an 8 p.m. I had a 9 a.m. and a 9 p.m. So it's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it could be a bit of a killer. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. It's good that you keep it up, though. Yeah. So, so you're, I guess the, the first question for me, actually, but before you even get to introduce yourself, because this one's been burning in my head, you're just back from a tournament. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. How long do you normally give yourself off and, and your team after a tournament to rest and recoup and get ready for the next one? Uh, I mean, it, it differs a little bit. I think that for the team, I give them uh, or, or we give them some time off for sure. Uh, usually, you know, a few days, usually they will start playing some pubs by themselves. Um, but I would say uh, anything from a few days to, to a week, depending on how soon the next qualifier uh, is. I mean, for myself, mm. I don't really give myself so much time off. I guess maybe one day and then I feel like I, I, I should be back to work. Uh, I feel like the eSport e- life... Uh, not only being players play a lot, but I also think that people that work in esports uh, generally work a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, for me, I never played as high a level as you did, but I was a, you know, semi pro player in Australia in CS trying to go pro. And I had, I always had that burning feeling in my mind. If I was out to dinner with my friends, I was thinking I could be at home practicing right now. I'm not even the best in Australia, let alone in the world. Like I should be playing. And, Almost felt like a bit guilty. Of did, did course, though. No, I, I can see that. I do think, though, that, that there's, there's a small danger in that, right? When you when you start thinking about how, how there's so many people in front of you and how you ha- kind of have to catch up on them. Um, because, you know, mm. in some, some cases, people have so much more experience and, and time put into the game than you. But I, but I think it's just important to have long goals. <laughs> but yeah. but I, I mean, if I felt guilty... I don't know, not really, maybe. Yeah, and it's, an, more, and it's an, more guilty about. I feel more guilty work about work, like normal work, than about playing. <laughs> yeah, and it's a super easy way to burn yourself out. I found, you know, even for me, my last tournament, I went into that tournament feeling exhausted because I put so much pressure on myself throughout the 
the lead up and the off season to always be practicing, always be my best that, you know, wasn't able to clear my mind properly into play. Is that, is that part of it too? Yeah, no, I think so for sure. I think that's something that all players probably, I mean, struggle with on and off uh, throughout the career. I mean, the mental pressure that you put on yourself, I mean, People that compete in esports are generally speaking, you know, have competed before if it's in, in sports or whatnot. And then those kind of people tend to put a lot of pressure on themselves, I think, for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. So what should have been the first question? So that one just came out. It came out quickly because <laughs> it was burning in my, in my mind. But just we're, we're live, obviously, on LinkedIn and Twitch at the moment and we'll be turned into an audio podcast as well. So for those people who aren't aware of you and, and your history, can you just give a quick background as to who you are? Um, my name is Jonathan Berg, also known as Loda. I'm 31 years old. Uh, today I'm the CEO of Alliance. I um, used to be pro Dota 2 player uh, for, for many years. Um, quick, I'll try to do a quick introduction about myself. I don't do it so often nowadays anymore. Um, so I started playing Dota back in the old, old days. Uh, this probably 15 years ago or something when I tried the game the first time, uh, or maybe even earlier than that, back in Warcraft 3. Um, you know, was quite interested in gaming, but but never really, you know, such a seedless fan. Um, but when I started playing, or when I went to high school, I actually went to the same class as Ake, uh, who, who yeah. later on went on to be my um teammate in, in some of my most successful teams and that's kind of where my real um real drive and hunger for for, for esports kind of started um back then kind of in, in warcraft 3 to begin with i would say um mm. loved esports did it for a few years but on and off uh kind of gave up on the idea of esports becoming huge during my lifetime uh you know i was getting older around 2021, 20, I think, and I, I decided, hey, screw this, I'll, I'll go back to, or rather, I'll go study at university. Um, and I got into an education where I studied business economics. Um, but then it was only like one or two years into that education that TA1 was announced. And then I was like, ah, <laughs> what have I done? You know, I was great at Dora. I should really play TI. I know I can win a TI. Uh, but also seeing how, how esports were changing, I, I made the conscious decision to say, hey, all right, uh, I think I can make more money going into esports. And also, it, it's my passion. I really believe in this. Um, I, I know this is going to grow huge. So went back to playing um, on and off in Europe for about half a year. Then I traveled to Zenith and South, Southeast Asia um, and played there for, for a team. For about six months, competed in the first TI2, uh, got eight, went back to Sweden, uh, had an idea on how, how to play, how to beat the Chinese especially, and, and how had this idea of building an all-Swedish team um, to, to compete at TI and, and hopefully win it. Um, set out to do it and achieved it in 2013. Um, and and since then I played on and off with with various results. Won won a few tournaments after uh, TA3 as well, but but for sure TA3 was the pinnacle of my um, career, I would say. Mm. How does it? A question I always wanted to ask, and I wish I asked PPD this before. How does it feel winning 
TI3 compared to, say, TI9 today with such a significant difference in the prize pool? And also, is there is there a difference overall you feel in the skill because the game has been out for so many more years? Hmm, I mean, yes. I think that the feeling, if I understand it correctly from other players, I think the feeling will always be somewhat similar. I mean, winning money is amazing. Uh, and I think that winning, I mean, winning... $15 million instead of, uh, you know, one and a half million dollars is there's, I'm sure there's some, some difference in, in how it feels. But I honestly think that winning TA is, as I said, even though the prize pool has always been very high, even when it was one and a half millions, you know, that was still considered very, very high. I think it was never really yeah. about the money. Uh, TA is, is, you know, this, it really shows that you're the best Dota team that year uh you know yeah. and then and no one can ever take that away from you being the best that's something i think that's what makes it more special than anything i think that what made it so special for og winning it two times is just that you know that they they won ti two times they're the best dota team probably ever in in dota 2 uh, or at least so far um yeah. and sure I'm, I'm i'm sure they're very happy that they're they're very rich men but uh, honestly, I, I like to believe that it's the thing that matters the most to people competing in this game is, is winning and being the best, uh, being able to say you're the best. And there's something special in that. It sounds super similar to spend a lot of time talking to StarCraft 2 players when it worked at Thermaltake, sponsoring like Team Prime from Korea and such. And, you know, they would say pretty much the same thing. You know, if the if the GSL for them was a $1 prize pool, they would rather win that than any MLG, any ISF tournament or anything else that was going on at that time because it means you're the best in Korea, which means you're the best in the world, you know, undisputed. Yeah, no, I, I, I really think so. And, I mean, TA is a different tournament in so many other ways as well because I think teams that go there really show up to perform. And, and mm. uh, I don't know, it's really the best Dota has to offer every year, I would say. And then them winning that, it's such a special feeling. Uh, when it comes to skill, I mean, I would say, yes, of course, people have gotten better. I think that in probably anything in this world, people always get better, you know, even in traditional sports. I think that people will mm. always improve. Does that mean that I don't think that the skill level in that sense is that different, but there are so many more good players and good teams today. When we won back in TI3, I mean, there were quite a few good teams, but uh, I'm trying to remember, but I wouldn't say that, you know, more than maybe top eight were really tier one. I wouldn't say that more than top three out of those top eight could really compete at the same level when, when uh, you know, maybe us, Navi, LDD were at mm. such a huge, huge level. Uh, I think today the amazing thing is that there are so many teams that, I mean, if we look at tier one, I would say we almost have, like, looking at the major, at least we have 16 teams that are tier one. Uh, mm. And in between maybe 13 out of those 16 teams, I think almost anyone can take a game from anyone, uh, depending on the day. I still think there are some dominant forces in, in, in Dota 2 still. Um, but overall, I, I think that's the biggest difference is that 
uh, the overall level is is much much higher. Mm. Yeah, it was good you mentioning about how like the skill of games and the caliber is always so much higher at TI. I almost as a fan, I almost get nervous every year thinking, you know, I really hope this TI is going to be another good one, and it always turns out that way. And for me. As someone who never really played MOBAs in the past, TI3 was what got me into Dota. So I know that the marketing exercise of TI does work a bit because, you know, as with many other players, Dota was too hard. Started playing some League of Legends, maybe played a little bit of Heroes of New Earth before it died off. But, you know, the whole grandeur of TI3, the amazing things that happened, the hype around various Echo Slams and puck coils and all this kind of stuff, you know, really drives it home to someone. And it seems to be such a great marketing exercise. No, I like to think so. I mean, it's a special way of promoting a game by always ha- having the highest price pool in the world. But uh, mm. yeah, it works. I think so. Yeah. So we got into this discussion a bunch with with PPD before. Same question I want to ask you about the way the whole DPC and TI works. I'd love to get your thoughts about it. For for those people who don't know, basically what's what's geared up around is, you know, there's various Dota 2 events that happen throughout the year. If you win them or place highly, you get points that qualify you for the international, which is a monumental, you know, 30 plus million dollar prize pool in these days. But it means that all of the money and a lot of the attention for Dota 2 really is condensed into one single event. So I'd love to get your thoughts about, you know, the the what that does to the scene as a whole loader and maybe you know, if you had a magic wand and you could be king for a day, I mean, like, how would you what, uh, what what does to the scene that there's TI that is the pinnacle of it, or overall the whole system? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. What what do you think TI does to the whole system? Like, is it beneficial? Because obviously, um, you know, League of Legends is a, is an you could say an opposite game, but also an absolute opposite way that things are run. I mean, I really think that. I mean, I mean, TA is such a weird tournament, right? Because it does put some shadow on the rest of the year. But I mean, that being said, I, I really don't think the issue is that the prize pool is so incredibly big. I just think that, you know, there's so much more focus on TA as a, as a whole. And, you know, the way it's produced and all of these things that it also yeah. puts the, the rest of the season into uh, shadow a little bit, I guess. Uh, but I don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing. I, I just think that honestly, the DPC system and, and all, on also how some of those tournaments are held and, and, and produced could be very improved uh, as a whole. Um, mm. So I won't really comment too much about TI. Um, when it comes to the DPC system as a whole, I mean, I think it's a fairly good system. I mean, I'm not sure if you read those recent notes that Liquid posted about the, the next mm-hmm. season when they're going to have regional leagues and and uh, and whatnot. And I do think that a combination of that and majors is probably the best. Uh, if if what they said that it's uh, you know regional leagues and then there's going to be three majors uh, that these regional leagues go into. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it makes a little bit more sense as long as you make these majors really feel like mini TIs rather than uh, in some previous seasons when there's been so many majors happening that they don't really feel like anything. You know, they're, they're, they're just another tournament. Uh, mm. And that's, that's something I think is important to go away from. I also think that standalone tournaments, because as that is today, DPC, the only way to get points for the DPC system is playing majors or minors, uh, and that's how you get to TI. I do think that standalone tournaments should maybe 
give some DPC points, even if it's very, very minor ones, uh, would make sense to me. Um, mm. But yeah, but, but my, right, yeah. how I've watched the overalls, how I see or, or view the overall system and compare it to League and Riot, I mean, I think that League does it very, very well. Um, I mean, I, I would guess that Valve has seen some good points in what League does, and that's why they want to do regional leagues. And then maybe, mm. you know, have them funnel into playoffs or, or majors uh, where the regions play each other. If it should be a franchise, that's probably not something I would want to see for Dora. Uh, maybe if we could have a standalone tournament organizer uh, organizing a franchise league, I think that would be better rather than... I think that this, you know, idea of Dota where, where anyone can can make it and yeah, you can go through a qualifier anytime and, and even make it all the way to TI, I think that there's some yeah. something beautiful in that for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. One comment you said near the start was around you think there's some major gaps in the tournaments that are leading up to TI. There's been a lot of discussion around like very weak storytelling in esports. Do you think that's part of it? Is it the content people yes. not understanding who's playing? And, and I don't even think it's the. I don't even think it's content people. I think that I think there's many talented content people out there, and I think that a lot of teams have resources or, or can get people to help with that. But in many cases, and I will probably get flamed for saying this, but I think in many cases, and this is probably the biggest issue with TI. Uh, and t- the TI prize pool being so insanely big is that for mm. players, you know, if you compare everything with TI and how much money you can win at TI, it's very easy to, you know, argue that nothing else is worth putting your time or effort on than playing Dota 2 and trying to do well at TI. Mm. Uh, and I think that has led to a, Almost a culture, especially from like the old guard of of Dota players that have been around for a long time, they've gotten used to to that. And I think that in many cases they have not shared uh, the story. I think that what OG did, and I mean, I, I think probably they've gotten a little bit pushed by by Red Bull as well for for it happening. But I think you know what mm-hmm. they did, and then sharing their story not only through True Sight but their own documentary. I think that's amazing. That's ex- exactly what's needed. I think that's storyline i mean storylines and storytelling is what drives entertainment like esports i i I honestly think so i I, yeah you know i'm gonna let you continue with some questions but i could talk about this for a long time because i think if you look at dota you can see correlations between player base uh an increase in in overall player base and and good good storylines uh I, I i really believe so you know because when you see something or you can share this emotion about what's going on you want to be a part of that you want to do that and then you go play mm. a game of dora too because you want to be a ti um i think there are a few ti finals that have been really really good ti3 being one of them ti8 being another one i'd say uh, I wouldn't really call TI9 the same one, but uh, maybe because it was not as epic to see OG vs Liquid as, as OG vs LGD. Um, but also, yeah. But but back to what you said, I, I think it's 100% true. I, I think the storylines, we need to be better at that uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think, it, and I, I think um, 
touching like what you were saying too you mentioned about like the old guard and stuff i feel like sometimes there's a special elitism in esports where they don't take influencers and content creators seriously and i think i feel like that is is part of our downfall as well because there's so many content creators that are good at telling their own story in exactly ways like you were saying that i think if they got paid a bit more attention to because i've you know i've had this discussion a lot with tournament operators who see content creators as a necessary evil you know, to include them in your tournament and to pay them to help you sell tickets and things like that. But I think they deserve a bit more respect because that's literally what their their whole job and their whole life is to do, like what you're saying a lot of the time. I mean, more respect. I don't know if that's true, honestly. I mean, I, I know that there's quite a few <clears throat> content creators out there in, in Dota 2, especially that are just as respected as any pro players. Uh, mm. I think that's something new, though, that it's a way of solving it, right, or, or working around it, is that you employ content creators, maybe, to tell yeah. the story uh, instead of the players. Um, mm. But I understand what you mean, but I honestly don't really think it's true, uh, for Dora 2 at least. Uh, I think everyone has quite high respect for content creators nowadays, uh, at least the most recent year. Um, mm. I think yeah. your your comments about OG rung pretty true as well. Obviously, they've kind of struck gold with Red Bull, you know, creating so much yeah. content for them. But as a case study, most of those guys are not outgoing in any way, like Topson and, and um, yeah. Arna, you know, and still there's amazing content that can be generated about them. Like, look at how often Arna tweets compared to a normal pro. It's, you know, once every eight months, if you're lucky. But, yeah. you know, people still want to see that story on camera. And the Red Bull media team it looks like they've been able to drag that out. No, I think so, for sure. Uh, and I think for Anna, he probably would want to do as little as possible from anything. Um, but, but he's an awesome kid, honestly, and I, I think that's understandable um, when you perform as what he does. But yes, Red Bull has done that well, and, and it really shows, as you say, like every story is interesting you don't want to hear only about the obvious players on the team like the, the amazing thing about dota and, and mobile generally speaking is that usually there's very unique kind of people on the team and they're not the same at all that's why the same logic doesn't really apply for the for different teams because it comes down to people and people being so different but it's like as you said seeing anna say three lines uh, in true sight, it's, it's more entertaining than seeing someone someone else say ten of them. So I yeah. understand what you mean. I mean, for us, we, we with our previous team, uh, which is now with Liquid. I mean, we we were in a we, we were in a little bit of a weird spot in the world, but we really wanted to because we started off with them as kind of I would call it I don't know tier three, maybe tier two point five. Um, but we believed, and especially Kelly from our team, believe that you know people want to see this road as well. The people want to see the struggle. People want to see, you know, they don't only want to see people win. They want to see how do you make it as an esport pro? How do you make from mm -hmm. being how, how do you make it from being you know maybe an eighteen year old kid to becoming a professional? And, and we did it on very low budget, and you know did more of a classic vlog kind of style, but, but it worked out much better than I expected, you know, and, and uh, same thing there. I think that we should tell all the stories <laughs> or as mm -hmm. many as possible, at least not only the teams that win, because winning, you know, mm -hmm. we've all seen a lot of people win, but it's also entertaining to see people go through those real struggles. I think so. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think one, for me, you know, as a fan of the Dota scene and, and watching where eyeballs are going, it seems like Nico Baby is, is one of those people, you know, for you. And as soon as we started the Twitch stream, there's one guy who's been spamming Nico Baby almost nonstop <laughs> since we started. Okay. That, that looks like a story that people want to see. Yeah, of course. Uh, I love the kid, honestly. I think Nico is... He's, uh, it's funny because I wanted to add him to Alliance maybe two years ago, first time. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really thought he would be a good addition to, to even that previous team. But then after this tea, we, we kind of just, I mean, we kept in contact throughout all this time and it just made sense. But what I like about him is that he's just, he's pure passion, you know, and, and he's a cool Cool guy he has a lot of tattoos and all of these things, but more than anything, I think that he's he wants to win and he has this insane drive, and I think that makes him entertaining by itself. Because mm. uh, yeah, but but for sure, and I mean, I don't think he's watching this right now, but I w would love to do more content with him as well because I think his story is is very entertaining. He's quite different from a lot of other Dota players that I met, but. Uh, very exciting to work with. Uh, yeah. So keeping exactly like that in mind, what you said, you know, one of the main things that I think it was a snippet for us that PPD brought up was most Dota players don't feel it's worth their time doing any sort of content because they really do want to focus on TI and a big paycheck for winning. How do you, as a, you know, as a player yourself, but also now managing them kind of balance that act between asking someone to give up their practice time, which in their heads might make them perform less to, earn some extra money or to pay for their salary and their position on the team yeah i mean for me honestly the thing is everyone plays so freaking much uh it's i mean comparing esports to traditional sports i think an esports player plays or a gamer or whatever you want to call it plays much more yeah uh, than a normal athlete you know practice their sports so i think in most cases for me it's just that I don't think necessarily that you're going to be a better player because you play even more than you are today. I think that for a lot of teams and a lot of players, they have so much else to grow on to, to you, you know, to become good enough to win T. I, I really think so for, for a lot of people, you know, mm. they have to grow up, they have to become good teammates and, and doing content in the right way. Uh, can, can be a way of working on that as well. I think you shouldn't always do what you want. You should always do things that you think is difficult. I mean, if you're, a, just as a simple example, I think that if you're, you as a Dota player or pro pro professional or esport competitor, you, you don't like being in front of the camera. You don't like answering questions. You don't like doing interviews. Uh, I think, hey, okay, sure, we shouldn't, him to do it all the time but i mean at the same time it does seem like you have some kind of i don't know if it's a confidence issue or if it's uh you know not being want to be seen in front of camera or if it's something that keeps you not wanting to do this and then i think it's important to push these people to maybe not do this all the time but at least feel confident and relaxed doing interviews because that's what I'm saying, like getting used to all different kinds of situations and not letting it get to you or, or like messing with your hand. I think that's honestly quite a good skill to have because it's almost like mental strength, right? Like you do anything and go through anything. Yeah. And pulling out 
you know, a few things of like what you're saying, it's, it's the old adage of work smarter, not harder, right? There used to be this old thing, like a, like like for me in my playing career with, with CSGO, the reason that my team was able to go from nobodies in the tier three of Australia to, you know, probably top four, top six ranks is because we were complete nerds about the game and understood how to study. And that was in an early stage of esports where people would brag about how many hours a day they do deathmatch and they'd brag about how they wouldn't watch replays and demos and they wouldn't study. But I, I understand that and I, and I agree. And that's what I think is so weird. Even today, sometimes people are kind of overestimate how well everyone else does it. And I'm like, mm. maybe that's not really exp- and answering or going on to your question, but I, but I feel it's true. Like, People underestimate that you can come up with something really unique, even if you're not the best or, you know, maybe if you're tier three or whatever, like you, you might have a unique idea and, and you might look at it a different way. Uh, maybe like you guys did back then. I mean, nowadays people for sure analyze mm. replays and, and all the plays in the different directions, but there might be some other way that you, you makes your team unique in practicing. Yeah, and like you were saying, you know, for us, we were in no way the most experienced and most skilled, but we just out-nerded everyone. It was simply the fact that we yeah. understood the game mechanics and just spent so many hours doing that, and we didn't need to have the raw aim because if you can flashbang someone or you have the, the perfect... No, for sure, and, and I think that's the beauty in a lot of... Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say all because I can't remember right now, but I think in many games, even in CSGO or Dota 2, you know, it's, I love the fact that... Strategy can be skill, uh, mm. and skill can be strategy as well. Like some, you you know, you know what I mean there. That that sometimes a player yeah. and a team will beat you even though they have a worse strategy, but they're just that good that they just destroy what should have been won. Uh, and in the other direction, where you know such much much better players, they get kicked out in a open qualifier game because they didn't really expect this other team to have this really well thought out strategy. And, uh, yeah 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 so for you i mean there's a there's a question i get asked all the time and it's how what's the lifespan of a player and when does a player know when they need to retire you know hang up the mouse like what like what about you if i asked you that question uh lifespan of a player well that's a hard question i think that i mean depending on when when you become a pro player i think that's probably easily 10 years. I mean, if you start at 16, you play to 26, I think you can play. And I mean, I don't think there's a magic number. I think that you can play even until you're 30, probably. I, I just think that the issue is that, you know, competing at a top level when it comes to esports, I think it takes a lot from you. And, mm-hmm. and it, you, you need to really make it your number one priority in your life. Uh, above girlfriend, above family in many cases, uh, sadly, but but it's just how it is. And I think that that makes it harder when you get older to, to have the same focus and drive and, and just natural hunger and passion uh, that I believe that you need. Uh, I also do believe that the mechanical skill does go down, but it probably varies a little bit between people and people. I also think that certain roles could be maybe be filled by a uh, older player, let's say you're a post five and, and you're maybe a little bit worse mechanically, but uh, you have a ton of experience and leadership and, and drafting maybe. Uh, I don't know. 
mm. for myself. Uh, when did I quit? Like two years ago or two and a half years ago? Was I 29 or 20? I think I was 29 and I was about to turn 30. I think mm. that was for me probably... I mean, it's hard to say. I think that for me, in a sense, it was a little bit too late, but it was more about where I was in life. So I hadn't really felt like I could commit myself and compete in the same way. And I don't think I had. It became more and more about not losing to me and, and less so about winning. And I think that's for sure yeah, right. something that, like, looking at it afterwards, uh, I feel like, hey, that was a... a very clear sign that I should have stopped. But yeah, I, I don't really think it's an it's easy answer to that. Uh, mm. But for sure, when it comes to like playing mid, for example, I, I think that there is a much uh, shorter lifespan of, of how, long, how long a player can be the best in the world playing mid, for sure. I, I think we're talking just about a few years. Yeah, the other the other player I got to answer that question was DSN ex Fnatic CS one point six player, and yeah, and he gave some similar answers, and obviously from the same home country as you as well. And you know, he gave some similar answers, and we were talking specifically um, about um, I think it was Zist because we were watching him on stage at yeah. IM Sydney, who's an ex teammate of his, saying, you know, he was saying, look, I think Zist has a couple of years left before. You know, you can kind of you can kind of spot it, I guess, from the outside as an ex player and in Counter Strike, obviously. You know, there's so many Twitch movements that need to happen and it's do you move down to that in-game leader role or that support rifle role the same way in Dota? Do you move down to that pos 4-5 or do you even want to if you're used to being the, the position one carry all the time? Yeah, you know, no, exactly. No, I think that's a really, really good question. I mean, that was the thing for me, right? Like, I think in many ways I would have really suited to be pos 5 because in, in most teams... I played in, I was leading, but maybe from a carry role or another role, but I could never really, and I tried to force myself to like it, but I could never really love playing five as much as I love playing carry or mid or, or offlane. And, and yeah, I, I don't really think that was for me either. Uh, <laughs> so I understand what you mean there. Like, of course, it's, mm. it might not feel right, but that's why I think like certain players, they, they want to keep playing, keep competing forever and, and under any circumstances and, and they can switch between all of the roles, I think. I think that Kuroki and uh, is a player that has done that really well, I think. I mean, he was mm. you know, he, he's a really, really old school player. He has played probably every role, uh, just like me. He was, you know, I used to be one of the best mid players in the world back in Dota 1. Kuroki was the guy who took that throne from me. Uh, later on, he went to carry just as I did and then Later after that, he went to five. So, mm. uh, I mean, obviously it is possible. Do you find there's like, is there like a typecast of person who plays various roles in Dota or has it really changed from your experience? Like, do you find that a, a five is different? Because I guess, you know, someone from the outside might say a five is a bit more nervous and quiet, but then you've got Anna, you know, who blows that mold out of out of the water as, as a carry. Um, do you mean that Anna is quiet and is a carry? And yeah, more yeah. Like, do you find a typecast of mid players are a no, certain way versus carry? I, I mean, player? not really. I, I think that I think that there are carry roles is often either off. You know, either they're this really outspoken, kind of cocking, 
happy guy that, that just wants to look good and do well and over there the opposites where they're very very quiet and like, they just focus on mm. doing their part but they don't really lead they don't really you know they will farm for 35 minutes and then they're like okay let's go and game and yeah. then you, have game. <laughs> you know what i mean no it's it's true i would maybe i'm wrong but i i sometimes when i look at niche i feel like he looks a little bit like that maybe not now that he plays mid but uh previously when he played carry mm. um, so like I a do... like a samael in an artesi versus an Anna or something which is what yeah no i think i think yeah. so i think so and i'm probably more of the you know outspoken cocky kind of guy i think nico is nico baby is a little bit more like that as well mm. um, because i do think that the strength of that i mean there, there are different strengths and different ways of doing it in every team and i think that og had a very 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 good mix of players and personalities and i think that's kind of what it comes down to right like i think that you can't have too many of the same kind of person you can't have a mid player and a carry player that both are that kind of guy and maybe that's why rtc and Sumail never really won any major tournaments together because i do think there's a truth to that mm. uh, maybe no tail feel that more outspoken or or, or uh, seb for example role in in, in og and I mm. think that, for example, there is probably either of them, you know, kind of rallying the troops and rallying the morale during the game, like I did uh, from the carry role. But it, it, it can differ for sure. I think the one thing, though, that I do think is, I feel like more often than not, the offlane player is a quiet guy that likes to do his own thing. <laughs> and, you know, kind of like the lone wolf. That that's a role yeah. that I feel to this day is, is for sure uh, the most reoccurring personality type. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And there was a, I guess, trying to trying to wrap up the player questions before we like get into some more business stuff. There was a really good question someone put forward to me on Facebook around mental and mental training. I, like a major thing I notice now, and this especially happens with FPS games where, you know, back when I was playing 2013, any single time you got a single kill, the whole team was exploding, they were yelling, they were screaming. But now everybody's so much more cool, calm and collected. You'll see someone yeah. do a 1v3 clutch, they'll do a fist bump, they won't even blink. You know, you'll see yeah. Arno win TI and he won't talk. You'll see, you know, the similar things with Team Liquid as well when they perform well and, and with yourself and others. So how does... How does someone go about that mental training? Do you have a mental coach? Is it just you from experience talking to your players, or how does that work? I think it differs a bit from team to team. Uh, I think, you know, back in TA3, I think it was a lot maybe me and Ake, I would say, to some extent, who had this experience and could kind of teach the other guys. Uh, and our, our, it also worked quite well with these these other players, Bulldog, as for an EGM, like being that personality type. So we always, we were always calm and we felt like mm. getting too excited was usually a, a risk rather than enough of a plus side. Then again, I'm also quite a vocal player that I do really believe that in certain cases, you should make your team believe, you know what I mean? Like you, the mm. way you shout or whatnot you just make your team believe that this is the right move and they will follow you in and, and even if they don't believe it you end up winning the fight right so i i think there's always a balance between these things uh with mental coach and how you train it i think the same thing there it differs from team from team to team i think that certain teams they have a really strong leader that can maybe kind of hold others under their wing i think that with our previous team we we employed a mental coach 
uh, for for quite some time because we noticed that there were playing on stage was difficult for us uh, back then uh, mm. with that team and, and and you know I could help to a certain extent because I did focus on, on you know more of mental coaching and, and everything around more so than the game but uh, I think it was good to bring in a professional to to help them out there at the same time you know it's it it's up to people and players themselves to to how much they use things and how much they value them i, I feel like sometimes when you bring in these people it's 10 percent out of 100 percent of what they say that actually gets to the players but sometimes that's enough mm. that uh, it will make a difference when you're playing yeah what, one thing I've, i also really wanted to ask you was what's What's special about Sweden that that brings so much pedigree in esports? There's so much positive history in Dota. There's so much positive history in Counter Strike. There's been a few Star Starcraft players and even Heroes of New Earth. Like, is there something? Is is it the culture? Is it the support government? How schools set up? Like, like why is there so much out of Sweden as as a small country? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's much due to the government or or the schools. I don't think so. Maybe that there is more room to pursue things outside of, of a career or, or studies or, or these things uh, that yeah. makes it so that we have maybe more people that are successful in unique uh, I don't know, what do you call it, businesses or sectors uh, it's also very cold and dark during winter so we, we have a lot mm. of time to spend inside um, but I, I think obviously it's a combination of all the things, but but I do think we have quite a good culture when it comes to you know letting people do special stuff because usually our parents are pretty much like, hey, do what you love. Uh, you need to be able to take care of yourself, of course, but it's not uh, go be a doctor or anything like that. It, it's more about to find what you love and and do that if you can. Mm. And I can't remember who told me there was another person from Sweden I talked to. It was either DSN or maybe Khan. Um, something about Sweden being quite early to get high-speed internet as well. Oh, really that's, very, that's, that's actually very true. I, I do think that's for sure an uh, important, important thing. Mm, mm. So it, as another super common question that I get is, you know, hey, my kid's 15 years old. They seem to be very good at Fortnite. You know, how do I help them turn this into something that's real? You know, there's obviously unlimited amounts of pathways if you play soccer. Or hockey or swimming or anything like that you know what's do you have any basic suggestions for a mother or a father of a 15 year old who looks like they've got some skill and they want to help nurture them to become a pro player i mean i think that there are i mean even in fortnite i think that there are ways to see if somebody's really good i think that there, in many cases people come and ask you and say oh i think my son is really good and sure they might be quite good but they're not really exceptional, you know, and I think that to yeah. commit to esports, yeah. you honestly need to be exceptional. It's not just this, you beat some of your friends, it has to be that they, you know, if you go play with 10 people, they will notice you. If you go play with 20 people, they will notice you. Mm. Uh, but for sure, if you give those those signals that you are that good, I mean, Wow, I think that today, for example, there there are options, more options. So rather, I would say rather than than when we were, when we were young. <laughs> no, but uh, I, I think that, for yeah. example, something we do today, uh, we work with this Australian company. Actually, uh, had a partnership this year, um, or from last year, Mogul, 
which mm. offers like you know tournaments and and, and uh, you know competition or practice i would say in a different way than just playing ladder uh, i think it's still lacking though and and that's the whole reason why we're working with these guys i, I think that's something that yeah. has to be improved in in dota but other games as well uh, when there has to be a better place for people who are you know quite good they want to become the best uh, and just playing ladder might not be the way to get there uh, what's the tip i can get i mean look at your favorite players learn from them but but more than anything i think that one of the most important things of becoming really really good is you know find other people at your own level probably better i would always find someone better than myself to learn from uh, mm. of course it's not as simple as going to signing up for a football club and, and you know going there to train but i think that logic is still somewhat the same that you know having a group of people around you that wants to become better uh, just as much as you and being able to find people that are better than you even if you know that you will end up being better than them one day there's quite a lot to learn uh, you know honestly uh, but this answer the fast answer is there is no simple way to to, to get into esports today i think uh, you have to be noticed that's why people stream as well i think because it's a way of being seen being discovered yeah, and I think an important thing that you said is gain experience in different ways, not just through ladder, you know, put yourself in competition type scenarios and, you know, thinking exactly. back to when I was a player there, you know, CSGO was quite honestly a terrible game when it first came out and there was no, there was nothing to compete in besides a single online league. And I thought, well, if I want to be pro, I need to play live. I need to get that live experience being, you know, a youngster new to the scene. So I made my own LAN. And then, yeah. you know, started inviting teams and it became a 16-team ordeal. But, you know, just trying to put yourself in those other situations. No, and like I, you said, it's not just about ladder. I, I think that's a perfect example, exactly of what I mean. Like, you can't just wait for people to notice you. You can't just be like, oh, I'm super good. Why, why am I not invited to a good team? It's like, you know, there are 500 billion people now, but you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you need to do something different to be noticed. I mean, even, even me back yeah. in the day, you know, I, I thought I was really good, but people wouldn't invite me, <laughs> wouldn't invite me to good leagues and good, good games, you know, and I kind of just had to pester people and, and find the right friends. And then bit by bit, you were invited to one in-house game and then suddenly you were one of the good guys. And I think just like you mm. said there, like organizing something, organize your own tournament. Why don't you do that? Because then at least, you will find everyone else that signs up for that tournament, they will be, they will have the same focus and, and ideas as you. And yeah. Yeah. Being yeah. I think, I think, and I think that's part of why Counter-Strike with limited developer support up until recently, is such a strong esports title, because there's always been so much content. There's always been dream hacks. There's always been multiple online leagues. There's always been, you know, MLG dipping their toes in and ESL around for, you know, tens of dozens of years, you know, creating content all the time for people to compete in, to become better than others yeah. and you know that's how the champions are made no i think you're right and then that's probably a good point that i haven't really thought so much about but i do think that that's a place with dota and i think it will be improved for next season uh, mm. but where where a lot of the online tournaments have disappeared perhaps uh, because yeah. to be relevant everything has been kind of top heavy around those teams uh, and they stopped playing the online tours but i think that's I still think we're going to go back into that direction as well. Uh, 
Um, I have a very, I mean, I was there at the meeting with Val the other week when, when they discussed this new DBC mm. um, system and, and all of the things they have in mind for Dora. And, and I think that Dora has been in a weird place for some time, but I honestly look at the future very as very bright. I just think that it's important that everyone, including players uh, and organizations and, and, and Valve, maybe NTOs, like come together and, and push storylines a lot and, and, and do content. Uh, yeah. Sure. There's a really good question in the Twitch chat from AG Murdercore. And now, now that you've moved from being a player into being a, a coach owner and CEO yourself, how do, how do your biggest challenges change? Like, what are your biggest challenges now? Is it balancing time between different things? Is it putting the business hat and suit on? Or Wow. How, how my challenges have changed? I mean, they've changed very much. Uh, I think that being a player is and being a captain and, and, you know, it's a very hard and stressful and straining life, but it's also a very simple life in a sense that, you know, you know, I mean, it's not a simple life. That's not what I mean. But, you know, it, it makes it. life simple because it's like either you're good or you're bad. Either you're successful or you're not. You know, everything shows you all the time if you're doing the right thing, I guess. You know what I mean? Like success is so you can measure it. Uh, being a CEO, I mean, it's been different challenges all around, but I think that that's probably a little bit harder for me sometimes that that they're not always clear like am i doing a good job am i a good boss am i uh, all these things um mm. but i also think i mean now i've been ceo for two and a half years i think the first one year was very difficult and i think learning to not only be responsible for people on, on a different level but but uh for me, it was hard. I mean, maybe a little bit similar to being a captain in Dora. It was hard not taking things personal, uh, you know, sometimes. Uh, but overall, the challenges are very, very different. Um, but it gets better. And, and it's much easier now than it was one year ago. Um, but the biggest challenge, if I should say anything, is probably that I don't really know how to ever stop maybe or take a break or not not think about it <laughs> mm. being the ceo it's always so much uh, you can do uh, yeah. and i want to work with the dota team but then i have to work on business sides of things and i yeah it's many many challenges but i think this year finally is when i've kind of you know come to a point where it's okay that i'm not there with the dota team they, they can perform without me they they are strong team in their own and, and I don't have to be involved in everything. Uh, mm. So it's mm. a small, small victory, I guess. <laughs> you're not, and you're definitely not alone in that, in that thinking, um, you know, in that feeling that you have about, you know, always wanting to perform and there's always more work to be done. I think that there's a, you know, a collective lot of us that work in the esports industry who all feel that. And, and sometimes it's even myself and talking to other business owners that we feel the weight of the industry, you know, where, we've been around for a long time and it's up to us to help grow the industry and not only do you have employees who are relying on you 
to for their salary to pay their mortgage and to feed their children and to grow a future but also you care so much about esports that you remember what it was yeah. like when you and i were 16 and there wasn't any tournaments no, we could win exactly. a can of coca-cola or something like that and you know we want to keep it growing and keep it going no i think so for sure i mean i, I don't think i would not be in alliance if not for those reasons uh, honestly and i, I think Especially for us, it's a little bit difficult also, you know, when, when we're a player-owned org, we're still one of the few orgs that haven't brought in investments from the outside. Um, mm-hmm. And when you compare yourself with, with some of these other juggernauts out there that have so much more resources uh, to do things, it's also the same thing there. Like, almost a little bit, as I told you earlier in the conversation about how I think that, you know, players and esports players, you shouldn't have these short goals because then you're like, I need to catch up to these people now, uh, yeah. I kind of have to remind myself about that sometimes, you know, that, yeah. okay, we, we need to have uh, reasonable goals. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's pretty easy to make unfair comparisons, right? Especially, and you, and you see this happen a bit. Um, you know, some people in Australia call them money orgs. You know, when a money org comes in, they're not born out of players like yeah. yourself or OG or even EG, you know, with that long history in it and they come in with the money and then you can kind of feel hey where's my money like how did these guys raise 30 million dollars and they only existed for a year you know i've been in the in the trenches playing for a long time and you can feel a bit hard done by i guess is probably the word or yeah for sure and i I think that's something i had to accept as well but i mean that might feel unfair sometimes but i think the only time that i really get frustrated by it is probably when they come in you know, and, and you've probably seen this as well. Like it's less and less so, and I think that especially players have started to trust these new players uh, in in the scene less less and less, maybe so that they do then tend to stick with the more established brands. But you know, when somebody comes in and they just throw money around, and as you say, I'm like, well, where did they get this money? Who did they raise it with? They pay players obscene amounts of money, which is fine because we want players to do well. But then they make an exit, you know, one year later because they didn't get what they were expecting. And we've been part of building esports, you know, we've we've been part of making things valuable. And when mm-hmm. they come in in this way, they kind of just they're a threat to the stability of this ecosystem. Uh, so I would say that's what makes me the most frustrated. Uh, mm-hmm. And I mean, the only way we can deal with with these big players nowadays is just we have to reinvest almost all of our money into in, into the company uh, to be able to be competitive. Mm, mm. Yeah, I have a good case study of a team in my region around that where they had some money and under the under the guise of or explanation of I really want to look after my players, they paid much higher salaries than everyone else but didn't have any money left to do business development, to get sponsors, yeah. to tell a story. And by trying to look after their players... They did the worst thing. They killed their company and their players were out of a job because they couldn't afford to, you know, keep the lights on because they were just paying such obscene amounts. And, you know, that made our scene seem quite unstable for a while, but we're seeing a correction here with salaries, which is good. But, you know, it was similar what you were saying with the money orgs. It was small leagues in Australia where a single team could cost you a million dollars a year in flights, accommodation, and in salaries. And a million dollars a year for a tier no, one CSO team is a lot of money. That's insane for me. I mean, you could get a, I mean, a CS team is 
quite a bit more expensive than that today, but mm. you can get a fairly decent CSGO team for that. Uh, and that's what I mean, right? And, and players, they will always want high salaries and all these things, but but I do think that's important to keep in mind. Like For all of us that, that care about esports and even compete in esports and, and want to see things improve, because they will keep improving and then your salaries will go up, uh, we want to have serious partners that, that, you know, there has to be some kind of revenue model or, or business model behind it. It's not that you have to make money straight away after one year. That's very difficult, but there has to be you know, these long goals. Because we there's in bubbles. I, I think you should, I don't even know when this was, 2007 maybe, when, when, when Warcraft 3 kind of blew up and suddenly Grubby and Moon were paid thousands and thousands of dollars where no one else was paid more than you know 500 uh, after that there was a bubble yeah. and, and it's just i think esports will prevail no matter what but those are the things that might you know set us back a few years uh, if, if we don't keep in mind yeah 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 definitely and like you were saying you know if you think counter-strike source the championship gaming series the same stuff as well you know fatality being reported to be on a million dollar salary to commentate a game he doesn't have any idea about and yeah crazy you know bikini models holding up round cards and televised when it didn't need to be in third person for counter-strike which was ridiculous in its own right but yeah yeah you definitely get that Yeah. What about what about for you? There's been, and I can't ignore it, there's been so many questions in Twitch as well as asked to me directly around there's so many teams that are expanding into other countries right now. You know, mm. Optic was probably the first into India with CSGO, but we all know that went badly due to some cheating issues. Um, you know, FaZe Clan has gone into Southeast Asia, um, you know, Cloud9, LGD, et cetera, et cetera. Do you, do you see that as a, as a cheap and viable expansion plan for you guys as you're looking to keep the cost down? Uh, I mean, that was a double question, I would say, but uh, yes, I would say straight out, yes. I think that for us, it, it would be a very natural step to take, mostly due to the fact that we have a huge part of our following in, in Southeast Asia. And mm. that's always been a long, long set goal that we, we would return there in, in some sense. We, you know, meeting our fans there, it, it's... It's amazing, and being able to do that, I mean, maybe not in Dota, but, but let's say mobile gaming or uh, India, as you mentioned, it is very interesting for sure for PUBG Mobile, as a ton of people already know. Uh, and I would say, yes, uh, we, we want to expand, especially into these regions. I wouldn't just say that it's cheap because some of them are less cheap than you would expect them to be. Uh, but these growing markets are very exciting, and the fans are very passionate and i would say that's also a big reason why why i would want to uh, expand uh, into one of these regions and, and i wouldn't be too surprised if it's if we do uh, in one way or another this year so so far what's what's been the best and easiest games for you to work in are there any specific titles that have brought you really you know ease, easy expansion any that have brought high returns compared to others wow I don't know if there are any games in Dota. I mean, in, in eSport as a whole, that gives, you know, high returns. Uh, I think that Dota has always been our, our core game, and it's a game that we've been able to work well around. I think mm. that a lot of teams uh, that enter Dota have a hard time making the, the 
business kind of work out. And I do think that's a has a lot to do with the fact that it's a highly competitive game for sure. Um, but I do think if you do perform, there's money to be made. Um, but I mean, it's hard to say. I think that's almost all games are, are depends quite a lot on, on sponsors uh, and their interest into the games, and then that will affect things. I mean, there were a few years a few years ago when we went into H1C1, which I think was both a good game. Honestly, I I, I really enjoyed that one, uh, and the tournament structure was good. Uh, and the revenue sharing and all of these things made made the whole thing work and make sense. And it was run by someone who wasn't really. I, I won't even go into that discussion at all. <laughs> but, but TLDR is that the league uh, probably bankrupt. Uh, so you know that didn't end up being a great experience either. But I do think that. Mm. I just want to say what, what I'm trying to say is is that I think that all games are possible to to make viable and, and as a business, honestly. Uh, it's just that it's not easy. And I think that's, that's what probably what people are looking for in many of these cases, you know, an easy way to make these games work. And I think that, yeah, yeah, it, it's difficult for all teams almost. And, and I think it's more about building something around the game. And maybe like FaZe are doing, I think FaZe are a very good example, you know, building this fan culture and, and an engagement and then finding other ways to make money rather than from their eSport part. I mean, for us, we're still com competitive and Dora is, is, is that game, but mm. Mm. yeah, there's a comment from my side. I, I don't think eSport is easy. I don't think it's supposed to be easy either. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think, like we said, you know, with the quote unquote money orgs, they prove time and time again that it's not easy. That, you know, Optic can get bought out and be such a you know, long history in esports and can be essentially dead in a couple of years. And, no, you know, EG being another case, being at the top for many, many years of esports and then virtually disappearing before, you know, coming back recently. Yeah, yeah it definitely happens. And I mean, I think that we were, we're somewhat in a similar space at them, I would say, where they were, honestly. I mean, now we're at a much better place. But when I took over two and a half years ago, we were at terrible place we had been having the org as a swedish entity for maybe one year i think i've still been playing uh we kind of lost you know connection with our roots i would say in many ways uh and and had to you know kind of crawl back from that uh and, and it was difficult for yeah. us as well but i think that um yeah it is you know if you make the wrong decisions and and you don't really, really keep track of what you're doing. You might disappear, and I think that's that's the reality of esports today. Uh, mm. And I would say that's the main reason why why perhaps we as well um, are looking to secure investments is to have some a little bit more of a safety net around it. Um, mm. That's a that's a perfect segue because that was my next question. You know, you you stated before that you haven't taken any outside investment yet, and I was going to ask. You know why? What are the plans for the future? And so you, so you've kind of already started into that. You know what? What sort of investment are you looking for? Is there any particular type of money or type of partner that you would prefer over any others? Um, before I answer that, I'll just say like the thing is for us that you know we we we've, we've been a long and long time as a brand, and then previously both EG and, and Alliance and 
Paramount of other teams were owned by Good Game uh, Agency, which was bought up by Amazon or Twitch. Mm. Um, and we kind of thought that would bring us to the next level as an org, but then it was a weird situation where Twitch was kind of owning too much of the space and owning teams as well became not really feasible for them anymore. Yeah. So uh, that's when we took over. Um, so based on that, we were always a little bit, we wanted to build the grounds of this company before we kind of looked to bring in investment, I would say. Um, but when it comes to what kind of investment, I mean, we've talked to quite a few different groups. And last year, there was one uh, um, one big deal that almost went through. Um, and I mean, it depends a lot. I mean, for us, I think, and, and for me especially, I think it's important that you get a partner that has something more to offer than only money. Mm. I mean, uh, there is a lot of money out there, but there's also a lot of people who you know want to make money as they should, obviously. But uh, yeah. I think especially looking for partners that you know can help us with business development that that knows part of this world that we don't. Because I mean, I'm. I know esports very well. I know Dota two very well, and I, I honestly see myself as quite an expert when it comes to a lot of games. And, and I've always had a very good eye for seeing talent, I think. Um, mm. But when it comes to business development and, and, and you know, dealing with non-endemic brands and, and then, you know, going to investments or raising money or whatnot, I mean, that's something I'm less, uh, less talented at, I would say. So, you know, yeah, just, just adding strong partners is, is for sure important. Yeah, and it's and it's really good that you identify that because there does need to be that balance, right? Like with my company, one of our other directors is a COO of one of our investment companies who's responsible for pulling in over $10 million a year in deals for making apps with Hollywood companies. So often I call him the bullshit filter, which is a pretty common Australian saying, but also the business head where I might bring something to him because I think it's exciting in an esports sense. Like, hey, I get to work with this cool player or do this cool stuff because I've been a fan of theirs for years or their team. But TJ can say, Chris, this doesn't make any business sense. Like, sure, yeah. you're hyped about it, but I'm he's emotionally removed. And I say, I don't care what you want to do because it doesn't make financial sense. And, you know, sometimes that, that business head, as annoying as it may be, is is really helpful in growing a business. No, I, I, I really think so. I mean, they, they will also challenge you so that in most cases you will be like, okay, you're right. Uh, but then every now and then there will probably be an idea that you're really passionate about and that, that you're ready to fight for. And I think that also makes it... <clears throat> gets a better result than that. Yeah, and the and the anti-case study to like what you were saying really is optic, right? Where you get kind of a hundred percent bought out or controlled, it's a money making you get turned into a money making machine. You know, it loses the soul. I you know, one of my favorite podcasts of all time is listening to Hex and Nadeshot talk about this. You know, yeah. Hex saying basically they lost the soul and he lost control and they hired, you know, 30 staff and most of them didn't know what they were doing and with the goal to, hey, we're making you say million dollars revenue, let's make that a hundred by the end of the year and just pump some money through. And, you know, you understand from what you were saying that it's not how esports works. It has to be authentic and you have to have leaders at the helm, like, you know, Patrick Satterman from Fnatic, you know, CS pro player for 10 years, like yourself at Alliance, um, you know, and various other players at the, at the helm, or at least very close to with some sort of mm, real estate uh, control. I, I agree. I, I really think so. And I think that fans are very fast at noticing 
like when things are real and genuine or not. And when they are, as you say, there, you know, that suddenly everything is pushed at you as a, as a form of a revenue model. I think that it's fans are very ready to spend money on their favorite teams, and I don't think they mind. But make sure that what you offer them is, is you know, in a genuine way, and that everything you build up around it is uh, makes sense as well. And I mean, that, that's what I would say is my biggest worry, right? Like, with, with no matter who we work with, I think that. Everyone wants to drive revenue when it comes to when they want to invest into companies and whatnot. But, but I do think that, you know, that fast growth is, is something that is, yeah, it's a little bit scary to, to chase that because mm. uh, esports wasn't built. I mean, now it sounds like a funny quote, but, you know, esports wasn't built in a day. It, it was... Uh, it took so much time from so many different people. And I, I think that, yeah, yeah, that, there's a lot of money to be made, but I think that you need to be there to at least invest some time into it. Yeah. And, and like you said, expanding on that passion, a explanation I use a lot to talk to companies is I feel like for me, esports is esports is the unloved child a lot of the time. And we've always been punching up so much. Like there's yeah. a there's a StarCraft II forum I used to go in all the time called SC2SEA. And I remember one of the posts in there was saying, Christmas is coming up. If you have any uncles who work for big agencies, they might work for KPMG, they might be a Coca-Cola executive, anything, tell them about esports. Tell them about how awesome it is. Let's get people involved. You know, even working with Thermaltake myself, sponsoring a StarCraft II player, one of the first pros in Australia, all these people would buy a keyboard and send me a screenshot just yeah. because, hey, you sponsored Pig, we want you involved. And I think a lot of the time esports people want someone, a, a grey-haired, 60-year-old person, managing director in a suit to say, we care and we're going to listen and here's the money and I trust you guys to keep doing what you're doing and I'm just going to be that fatherly figure that can provide that advice to you, yeah. you know, as you progress. And that, that means just as much as you know, them not being involved at all and having an esports player at their head. I think it means even more having the guidance from them and respect. Yeah, no, no, I agree completely, honestly. Um, and I mean, yeah, I mean, that's not really going into to what you said just now, but I, I just think that the, the thing that makes me a little bit sad sometimes is that, you know, as you said earlier, right, we, we've been punching upwards for quite some time now. Uh, now we've gotten to a point where suddenly people are more excited and then and suddenly companies are coming to us and, and you know, they're like, oh, eSports is this new hype thing. You know, we never heard about it. And we're like, ah, well, we were there knocking, you know, we've been talking to you for years now. <laughs> you never replied to us. But I yeah. just hope that some of these companies need to understand, like, they're going to miss out. There's still some time and, and there's for sure space for, for companies to come in and sponsor teams or players or whatnot where you will still be seen as one of these unique brands that were there in the beginning of esports and you mm. it's just how it ends up being right like if you're there in the right tournaments and you support the right price pool and whatnot you're going to be the good guys kind of and and it, it's a lot of brand value i really think so and and you know missing out on this is they're gonna regret it for sure uh, there's no doubt about it for me. So I, I, I just, because there are some partners that we would really, really want to work with, maybe from some personal bias or whatnot, mm. uh, you know, brands that we would just enjoy having on our jersey. Uh, but they are not that interested. And, and that's fine. 
but I just know that, hey, we're going to go with the competitor to them, and, and in a year or two, they're going to wonder, hey, why didn't we go into this thing with esports? Uh, and I think mm. that's important that some older executives also dare to you know, jump into this without understanding everything, maybe. What? What kind of brands do you want to see in this space? Like, you know, automotive has probably been the latest to jump in in a big way with everyone from Toyota to Honda to BMW, Mercedes, et cetera. You know, yeah. personal care with like Philips and Gillette. And then there's the obvious snack food brands. But like, what's what's missing? What do you want to see? Well, what's missing? I mean, I think it's just a mix of, of, of all of those. I mean, clothing brands have popped in more and more. And I think that Champion especially has made quite a heavy push into esports. I, I think that's yeah. great. I think that that's actually, I read, a, I read a study about that where you could see that uh, even though people might think that, you know, gamers or people that watch esports are, are generally speaking nerdy, but you could see that uh, people that follow esports are, well, by a few percent. Uh, more caring about clothes and, and how they dress and, and yeah. what they're wearing. Uh, so I think clothing even more, uh, you know, coming into esports and, and sponsoring different teams, I, I think for sure it's something I would like to see. And I think that overall these, uh, how to say, where, where, where you just realize that there's more similarities between these different spaces than, than you might think. Uh, I mean, car manufacturers for sure. I think in many cases it would be cool to have companies that are also environmentally caring, I guess. I think that this is maybe not the clearest uh, connection, but, but I, do, I, I do still think that a lot of people that are watching esports and, and, and play games actually do care about what's happening in the world and, and what's going on and, and environment. So. Uh, I could see a good fit there as well. Yeah, I think you're right. It, I mean, it correlates with like Gen Z in general, right? About caring yeah. about the environment. And that was a good chat I had with um, one of my friends from Germany who works as kind of a brand strategist and saying, you know, there's no point logo slapping on esports if you don't have products that are suitable. And if the only car you make is a big V8 diesel that's terrible for the environment, it's probably not the right place because even if you throw, hey, this is the car of esports on it, it's people are going to say, well, no, I want a Tesla or I want a hybrid or, you know, I want someone that cares about what I care about. Exactly. Uh, I think that's exactly what I mean. Right? You, mm. yeah, that, that, that both both levels, right? Like you, you, there are more similarities between these different words than you might think, and then also as you say here, but the fans and the users that follow esports, like they're not stupid. You can't just give them something and, you know, sell them a product that is that kind of car and then you sell it with a commercial that shows like, oh, we are esports. No, people are going to see through that straight away. You need to find the right space. But but if you have a good fit, mm. people will love it. Uh, I, I genuinely believe that people that follow esports, they will choose to buy a brand that uh, sponsors their favorite tournament. Yeah, there's a good case study of that that I laughed someone brought up in one of my recent podcasts was about that new governing body that launched um, that had a, they had a um, pre-roll including VR yoga and okay. such saying that, that they're about esports. And it's very, it's very much the same as <laughs> like what you're saying. You know, if you really want to go that full way, you have to be like KFC. You have to make fun of yourself for that yes. and make a dating uh, simulator you have to be like dr pepper you know they've yes. got wacky crazy league of legends advertisements that are hilarious yeah. because they're so stupid but you can't yeah. 
just say, hey, this is the car for esports, or hey, fellow children, come by this. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. it's not, it doesn't work like that. Oh, yeah. 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 The other thing I really want to see is more water brands and more health food brands as well. I feel like um, my my basic case study for this, and I've talked about it so much, is if someone has a contact with Subway, please get me in touch because they're struggling all over the world right now. And it seems perfect because I've created a lot of content at live events like PAX and Melbourne Esports Open and such we have here and asking people about trends and what brands they want to see. And it's overwhelming people saying, I want to see more healthy options. I want to see more health food brands and you can Mm. cut through. And like you said, be a pioneer in that space away from the Dr. Peppers, Coca-Cola beer has come into the space now too. And sure that, you know, okay for people to have from time to time, but I think now is a perfect opportunity for some health food to really get into that space I I think that's honestly a very, very good point. I mean, we've we've spoken to some, and I mean, that's probably more when it comes to snacks, as you mentioned earlier, but maybe healthy snacks. Um, But I do agree with you there. Mm. I I think that, you know, competing at a top level no matter what it is you're competing in, it's beneficial to, to live healthy and, and you know, uh, bring in healthy food or whatnot into the space. I think it would be a very good fit, probably a better fit even than, you know, chips or, or whatnot. And that, and that was, leads me back to another question that I forgot that I meant to ask you before. You talked about you had a mental coach in the past. So there's... There's non-stop psychologists messaging me all the time, mental coaches, physical coaches, everyone wanting to get into the industry. Um, and something that's always been burning in the back of my mind is the West is often about that. It's about healthy mind, healthy body, about going to the gym and playing, whereas the Koreans and the Chinese, for lack of a better term, don't give a shit, throw it out the window, and the Koreans will play 14 hours a day on StarCraft 2 ladder and smash everyone else. So what's your experience? Like, Do you have any evidence around this kind of mental coaching and stuff uh, actually helps? I mean, I think that there is no easy answer to that. I think that there are always different ways of doing things. I, I completely understand what you mean there about you know playing tons of hours and, and not caring about anything and all of this. I mean... Mm. Hmm. I, I think like this. I don't think you need to go to the gym. I don't think you need a mental coach. I don't think you need all of these things to win. I think that for for some time, maybe it's a few years or whatnot, you, if you're at this level, you, you will be so passionate. You will be so motivated by yourself and playing in itself that that is mm-hmm. enough. And in, in those cases, you know, I really don't think it matters if you go work out or you take care of yourself or, or whatever. You know what I mean? But you might not be able to sustain this lifestyle for more than those years. And you might burn out then after four years instead of playing for 10 years. And that's where I think it's important uh, to bring in all of these things. I also think that certain people and players are different. You know, some people need a mental coach to kind of unlock that next level of what they have in them. Some people, they're just that driven by themselves and they, they don't really need anything except themselves uh, to, to achieve it. So I, I don't think there is an easy answer. I think both sides work, but I think that if you, the reason people care about it more and more nowadays is, is probably more so to protect yourself or your players from burning out, from from getting sick from all of these things. Because... Mm. Tournament schedule is quite intense, and you know when you lose a player from a tournament, you have to play with a stand, and it, it's not a great thing. And I, I think that's why it's more and more important. I would also like yeah. to point in and say that I mean I can't speak too much about Korea because I don't know it as as close, but I know that for example in China, uh, 
I know for a fact that they have had issues in recent years that a lot of their young players burn out very, very quickly because mm. there is just so much pressure and, and time put into it. Uh, so, yeah, there's that, no easy answer. But I mean, I guess if I say anything, I think that to be at the top, you need to play a lot. And I, and I think that playing 14 hours a day is probably not only uh, in, in Korea and Asia. I think that there are a fair amount of Western players that play play that amount as well. And I think it works. I think that committing yourself that much works for a while. But it also goes back into what you and me talked about earlier today. Like, you can't only play to become better. You can't just play Dora 2 and improve and become this... No, you need to start, you know, how do you practice? What do you aim to do in your pubs? Uh, mm. Do you learn to work better with people or whatnot? Yeah, it was a long answer, but but I think you know what yeah. I'm getting at. No, I think, you, I think you're right for sure. Like using two gym analogies to what you talk about, you know, using a personal trainer when you first start going to the gym can help you teach what to do so then you can do it yourself. You already know how to deadlift and bench press and protect yourself, so you only need that. And maybe every now and then you need a bit of a top-up. You can yeah. bring them in, like you were saying, you know, your team was struggling a little bit. So you can bring them in for a week, for yeah. two weeks. The same as a gym, you can bring them in for one or two sessions and say, hey, is my deadly form still okay? Am I safe? You know, is there any new research I should learn about to protect myself? And the other thing, like you were saying too, is another gym analogy is, you know, my girlfriend started going back to the gym again recently and she's gone from a, a 60 kilo to a 105 kilo deadlift in a short amount of time. But then there's only a certain amount of percentage that starts going up after that. And yeah. once you've reached that peak, then it's about a game of half a percent, quarter of a percent. How do you make yourself better? And maybe in the past, esports hasn't gotten to a place where players have reached that skill ceiling. So the ones in Korea that don't care about the mental coach and gym can just play, play, play. And they don't care about that half percent because they don't need to throughout yeah. that time. But maybe now that we're starting to see all these proper high performance facilities come into place, you know, with teams from complexity to 100 thieves, et cetera, with these real facilities, maybe that's when the game of half a percent, quarter a percent will start coming in. But I, I really believe so. And I think that's a very, very good way of putting it. And I think especially now it is, we are at a point where this half percent might be uh, deciding between if you're going to win or lose something. Um, so for sure. Mm. I mean, that being said, I also think that there will still be I mean, the reason everyone is doing this and all the teams are building these facilities, I mean, it's to make, you know, the chance higher that people will, will get to this level of performance. At the same time, mm -hmm. there, there will be examples of people that will just come in from nowhere. They're 16 years old. They, they have no experience of anything and, and they just destroy everyone. Mm. And, you know, That's... those are the examples where we're like, hmm, what's, what's the secret? You know, what's all this work we're putting in? When we see someone like Anna, for example, who's, yeah, such a Thompson. unique player is yeah. so good. Yeah, but Anna even more so, I think, in some ways, because for Anna, you can see, you can almost see that he has played pubs with his four friends a lot of times, and he learned how to carry a game when he had four people really, really trying to help him win the game for them, and that's yeah, kind of what I saw happen in OG as well. You know, they played in a way where. They would all, including Thompson, and that's what that's what made Thompson so amazing. You know that he would start buying Solar Crest for mid, and just mm. helping it, using it to to, you know, push Anna into even even bigger strength. And and yeah, I, I just think it's such a remark remarkable combination of, of people and, and how everything just fit well uh, for them. 
Yeah, and part of what you're talking about to me says Fortnite. You know, I was at a competition over the weekend um, at the Australian Open Tennis, one of the biggest tennis events in the world. They had a $500,000 Fortnite competition across two days, 100K for charity and then 400K solos. Oh. 100K first place prize was won by a 15-year-old playing on yeah. a controller. And yeah. he beat players from FaZe, 100 Thieves, Cloud9, GenG, um, FPX from China. This kid had 1,200 Twitter followers unsigned. He'd won $3,000 in his life, and he's yeah. 15 years old. And yeah. it's crazy. He just won $100,000, and now he's yeah. got 20,000 Twitter followers instantly. Yeah. And I'm sure he's got offers left, right, and center from organizations trying to take advantage of him. But, you know, it's crazy to me that that, that can happen. And I think, you know, I, I haven't seen that too much in my knowledge of Dota where a 15-year-old will come through. Maybe Samael would be a great example under 18 winning a million dollars but um it yeah, seems I to mean, be so prominent just, in fortnite yeah no i just think it's different though i mean you have to keep in mind i mean how old is fortnite the game has been around what two years mm. and that just leaves the room for that happening uh, at a much bigger chance i would say uh, mm-hmm. And then, more randomness, right? Yeah, but it's also how I mean, like how it is in a lot of these new games, you know. And, and that's what I think is funny if you take it from a business perspective and how some of our works are working. Like, you have mm-hmm. these new games, and you don't really have any idea, especially for a game like Fortnite. Like, it's quite different from from an FPS. So you don't really know who's actually gonna become the best. So what everyone does is yeah. they. They probably invest in players that are, you know, he was really good at this FPS game and, and uh, you know, probably can learn building and whatnot. But, but the truth of the matter, especially in, in the first one, two years of games, uh, this thing happening is fairly likely that it will happen sometime at least, especially in solo games, I think, more so than in team games. Because when it comes to team games, I mean, obviously, you have to build up this this teamwork and all of these things. Uh, and I wouldn't say it's exactly the same thing, but I do think oh, somewhat something similar happened in Wings, the team who won TI6. Uh, they were not unknown, not at all, but but they had played a lot of Dota 1, and they played together for a lot doing that, and they were maybe like a Tier 2 Chinese team. Um, mm. But, I mean, they came from pretty much nowhere. I mean, we, we got to play them at an early stage, and actually asked for from our team. He was the guy who noticed. He was like, hmm, this guy's actually going to be they have something unique about them, but they kind of came from nowhere and, and, you know, surprised the Dota, Dota world and community in, in about one year and, and then mm. uh, one TI. Um, so I think it's room for it. I mean, but that's also what's the beauty about esports, but maybe not only esports, other sports as well, right? That there's, there's always this dream or idea that there might be some guy somewhere that is super good at this game, and he just didn't get the chance to play uh, at the right place. Uh, yeah, and and I think a lot of it is how you think about the game, right? After consuming a bunch of that content about OG, they just seem to think about the game and the way it operates differently to others. And you see the meta change with IO. You see the meta change with Admiral Bulldog making everyone pick nature's profit and rat each other all the time. You know, it's a lot of the time it's that team can change the meta entirely and, and that's what gives them a big difference. And that used to be the competitive advantage and disadvantage of Australia where Renegades, when they were new, could upset bigger teams because Australians were hyper-aggressive and people weren't ready for that. Hyper-aggressive aim stars that, you know, 
until people learn how to shut down that aggression, they could take some maps off some very high people who weren't expecting them to be a threat whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, so same way that if, you know, Arna picked IO into you, you're probably thinking, what is this idiot doing? <laughs> and then he yeah. 15 minutes no, later. for sure. I mean, uh, in the example with me, I've always, and that's probably what made me unique as well, I, I always believed that there was a thought about behind something, and I always thought, like, there is so mm. much to be done in this game that usually when people pick something stupid, I was usually the guy that said, no, no, they did, they have some idea behind this where my teammates would be like, they're just trolling, you know, they're, they're not even trying. Um, yeah. But I, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I used to love that thing in Counter-Strike where someone would be standing in standing in a place that someone else would say is really shitty. And you'd say, well, you died to them. So, yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah. And that's that's a funny thing, right? Because I actually had this conversation with Nico just the other day about how I think something that's very important, especially for, for players at the absolute top, is like, don't forget that even people that are worse than you might have something or have some idea or some way of playing that you, you can learn from. Maybe that's the reason why they're actually even close to you in skill level. Maybe yeah. you're just raw skill, but you're not even thinking about the game. That, that's what I've had to learn countless yeah. of times throughout my career. And I think that's a huge reason of why I could stay relevant throughout Dota 1, but then also come back in Dota 2 and win TI in these things. It's because I mm. learned things from people and players that were, I would call, worse than me. But I saw that, hey, they look at this game so differently. I think that I talked about this many times before, but I think Eternal Envy was a good example for us where... We kicked him, and then we, we went on to become the alliance that won the A3 and, and countless other tournaments. But the truth was, he was quite far be behind the rest of us when it came to like skill and playing on a team, I would say. But he had some really, really good ideas when it came to the mechanics of the game uh, and strategy of the game. And I, I think a huge part of what he taught us was what you know what brought we brought with us and we could combine with what we already have and, and that was the reason why we want to I, I really think so yeah i think a way to wrap up so much of what you talked about today and being a player is a, a quote i like to use which is you need to learn how to learn and instead of just blindly watching replays and just seeing oh they buy a solar crest mid oh, i should buy that too thinking why What's the yeah. purpose? And, yeah. you know, when I, this is what taught me a lot. There was one guy, our, our team captain, who was also our sniper and our main fragger at the same time, which is ridiculous in his own right. And now he's a doctor, so there's nothing he can't do. <laughs> you know, explain to me, watch Zist in, in NIP at that stage. Watch him go B tunnels on, on T side, and I played the same position. Why does he aim where he aims first, second, third? Why does he pre-fire mid-doors every now and then? Why does he throw a nade short? Sometimes he doesn't. And then when his teammate dies at long A, what does he do? And why does he do that? Yeah. And really thinking deeply about all of those. And it's almost like a mathematical calculation in your head that you don't have to consciously think about anymore. It's, oh, my team player died in upper B. I know exactly what to do. My teammate at long died. I know what to do. Or I know the strategy that we're likely about to execute, judging by where the split and pick went, you know, yeah. and, and what happened at any one time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's a good point. So you're a busy man. I've asked you a lot of questions, but it's been a really good chat. I've yeah. really enjoyed it. And there's been, it, some, there's been some good Twitch discussion too. So 
for anyone who's watching this who would like to follow you or would like to learn more, especially on the LinkedIn side, you know, we've got a lot of investors and companies that listen to this podcast. Where can they reach out to you? Uh, I mean, you can reach out to me at, at Twitter, uh, at Lodeberg. I mean, at uh, LinkedIn, I'm not really sure. Jonathan Berg. Uh, I think you can search for it there, working for Alliance. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I should get, give out my email here. That's okay. Well, LinkedIn, I can send you yeah. That's yeah, but re- reach out to me at LinkedIn. I mean, I'm always very open to take a conversation about esports, even though it, it it's not always to leads directly to investment I, I do care overall i do care a lot about esports as a whole and and mm. i mean we're here fighting as a business as well but to me it's always and that we didn't really talk about that either but you know i think that's a huge part of what makes us unique maybe and how it affects my work as a ceo is that mm-hmm. the players always come first for us uh, and, and you know we, we make a business around that as well but but I care about the players. I care about the health of the, of the ecosystem. And, and mm. um, that's probably what makes us unique as a player on board. Yeah, no, I see that too. And it's, it's a big part of wanting to have people like you and PPD on. Um, because while you and PPD have different personalities, I feel a lot of the time, you have the similar care and, you know, different ways of communicating. You, you, people like you, people like Patrick Satterman at, you know, Chief Gaming Officer at Fnatic, these kind of people that w- were pro players for 10-plus years or still are in PBD's case that have that real care and deep nurturing and understanding of the industry are the kind of people that need to be, you know, in those positions of authority and, and positions where they can enact change going forward or at least listen to. In a, in yeah, advisory. and I mean, I, I really appreciate that. I, I think that all of them are, are great people, and I, I think those are good examples of it. But because, you know, it's not necessarily that we always have to be in the position where everyone listens to us, but I do think that there is for sure something we have learned throughout these years that, that gives us a good understanding of the ecosystem. And, you know, it's not always because we care about the players genuinely, because we do, but it's also because... We do because we see, we know how important they are to how all of this works. Uh, and, and honestly, they are the stars that the fans follow. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And you know you know what you're going to get on, uh, on a lighter note on LinkedIn now is you're going to get a lot of messages from people in Asia wanting Alliance to expand there, and you're going to get a lot of messages from people in Africa. <laughs> because oh, Africa. Oh, really? They're people, yeah, they're two sets of people that are super common, bugging me all the time to, well, bugging's not the right word, but being in contact with me all the time to try to advance their local <laughs> scenes. I think there's some hyper-growth in both those areas. Yeah. No, I think Southeast Asia is honestly a, a natural fit. We've always talked to, already talked to some partners there, but super open to it. I mean, I, I, awesome. I lived in Singapore, so it's, it's one of my homes. Africa is, uh, I've never, I've been to South Africa and, and discussed eSport there, not the rest of the continent so much. Mm. But before I end, uh, if we're getting towards the end, I actually grew up in Congo, Kinshasa. So it's funny that you oh, wow. brought up Africa as a continent going to esports. <laughs> yeah, it's, man, there's so much advantage because it's like, um, you know, if you're thinking about where they are in technology adoption, it's kind of Southeast Asia has reached that kind of first world technology adoption now. Yeah. And just behind them is India and then just behind them is Africa. So it's like how far into the future do you want to look when you're yeah. expanding Southeast yeah, Asia really into Africa? That's super exciting. And, I mean, especially for these regions. I mean, with mobile gaming and mobile phones becoming much, much better, seeing especially mobile esports growing in these regions seems, mm. uh, you know, it's a given to me that it's going to take off. Because people... 
people love competing. I, I think this is like when we talk about esports, we always have to remember like it's about competition. The reason why we play games, at least for a lot of us, it's not just because you know it looks funny and all these things. It's because we've always loved competing. I think human beings love competing, and I think that yeah. doesn't matter yeah. where in the world you are. There's always going to be a hunger to be the best at something. Yeah, yeah. no, it makes sense to me. So. Thanks again, mate. I've, it's, I've taken a lot of your time and I know you're a busy man, as no am I. Problem. So thanks for it's, coming it's, on. It's been a pleasure. Take care, man. Thank you. And thank you to everybody who's watching on LinkedIn Live, Twitch, and also listening to this VOD uh, as, it, as it comes out later on the Big Esports Podcast. We'll be doing many more of these episodes coming out very soon. Uh, hopefully, we've got some more players lined up from different industries as well as some very big-name guests that are coming through the door now, which is fantastic. So make sure you follow us at Big Esports GG on all socials, or you can reach out to me at Smithy Mayo on all socials and especially LinkedIn. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you soon. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg.